The Young Pilot's Plain Tales Aprilia Adine The 1950s and 60s saw the world of aviation blossom. With the advent of new technologies, many coming from the military advances made during the war, combined with a new post-war optimism, the technological breakthroughs hardly slowed. Manned flight through the sound barrier had already been achieved and now science was delivering materials that allowed aircraft to surpass Mach 2 and then Mach 3. Nazi terror weapons were only the beginning, and soon the Soviets had their first ICBMs, shortly followed by the American Atlas. But then the world would be stunned when the Soviets launched Sputnik into outer space. With the public's eyes open to a world outside the confines of planet Earth, the possibility of life on other planets was being seriously considered. The thought of meeting creatures from another world can be traced way back to Lucian of Samotza, a Greek-speaking author of Assyrian descent who penned the novella A True Story in the second century, telling of travel to outer space, alien life forms and interplanetary warfare. Many more books were to follow, like A New Atlantis by Francis Bacon, The Man in the Moon by Francis Goodwin, and Marianne de Rumier-Robert's story of Lord Seton's voyage among the seven planets. The post-war period, however, saw modern authors like Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, Frederick Pohl, Paul Anderson and Isaac Asimov take the genre to new heights. The mind of the public was being opened to so many new possibilities that when Orson Welles announced to his amazed radio audience that Martians were invading New Jersey, many terrified listeners truly believed that the Earth was under attack. Thousands of listeners rushed from their homes in New York and New Jersey, many with towels across their faces to protect themselves from the gas which the invader was supposed to be spewing for. It's hardly surprising that reports of unexplained occurrences would increase exponentially. After all, if military fighter pilots could see these strange flying machines, then it's hardly surprising that the general public would as well. Indeed, a well-known and popular band, the Foo Fighters, was named after the nickname given to strange metallic spheres, balls of light and other shapes that apparently followed World War II aircraft. These occurrences were reported and on occasion photographed by both Allied and Axis pilots. Suggested explanations included St Elmo's fire, the planet Venus, hypoxia-induced hallucinations or secret weapons, and therein lies a clue to some future reports. In 1946, more than 2,000 statements were collected, primarily by the Swedish military, concerning unidentified aerial objects over the Scandinavian nations, along with isolated reports from France, Portugal, Italy and Greece. The items were referred to as Russian hail, 
and later as ghost rockets, because it was thought the mysterious objects were possibly Russian tests of captured German war experiments. Although most were thought to be such natural phenomena as meteors, more than 200 were tracked on radar by the Swedish military and deemed to be real physical objects. In a 1948 top-secret document, Swedish authorities advised the United States Air Force Europe that some of their investigators believed these craft to be extraterrestrial in origin. There were so many sightings by both military and civilian people that projects and studies were initiated, such as Project Sign, Grudge and Blue Book. Even military regulations were amended to include the possibility of extraterrestrial spacecraft being sighted. Air Force Regulation 200-2, issued in 1953 and in 54, stated that an identified flying object, UFOB, was any object airborne which by performance, aerodynamic characteristics or unusual features does not conform to any presently known aircraft or missile type or which cannot be positively identified as a familiar object. The regulations also said that UFOBs were to be investigated as a possible threat to the security of the United States and to determine technical aspects involved. The regulation went on to say, it is permissible to inform news media representatives on UFOBs when the object is positively identified as a familiar object, but added, for those objects which are not explainable, only the Air Technical Intelligence Centre will analyse the data that is worthy of release due to many unknowns involved. The subject of UFOs became a very popular theme in the press, on the television and in film, and the fact that the military kept very tight-lipped on the subject became, in itself, cause for conspiracy theories to abound, something that the intelligence service quietly encouraged. There were many very secret projects that the US government were investing enormous resources in, and when a rare sighting was made, any alternative explanation was preferable to the truth. Indeed, the more the general public believed that little green men were zooming around in flying saucers, the better. Edwards is the home to many test pilots, and the vast majority were there to fly and develop the regular inventory of aircraft that the USAF flew or were destined to fly in the near future. There were, however, a chosen few who were often seen shipping in and out of that special box within the Nevada Test and Training Range, known as Area 51. There were a few small cadre of pilots, and most had no formal name, but were given a variety of monikers. Our unit, who flew the YF-117A, were the Vaja Scorpions, named after a scorpion found in their office, and the whalers worked on the Tacit Blue, first flown on the 5th of February 1982. Back in the late 50s, there were a few pilots, generally referred to as groomers, after the nearby Groom Lake. 
the groomers flew one of the most exciting and remarkable projects of the time, details of which are only now starting to emerge after 60 years. The groomers were working on aircraft that employed the Coanda effect, named after the discoverer, Henri Coanda. A Romanian inventor and aerodynamics pioneer who described his effect as the tendency of a jet of fluid emerging from an orifice to follow an adjacent flat or curved surface and to entrain fluid from the surroundings so that a region of lower pressure develops. What Henri had developed was a way for a saucer to fly, and he is the father of the flying saucer. The basic principle of the commander effect is that if air is ejected from the top of a dome and deflected to follow the curved surface, it will generate a change in pressure that will lift the dome. It's a simple enough effect that can be seen at most garden centres or nurseries when you watch the water flow around a globe-shaped fountain. The water will flow around the globe far beyond what seems possible. It's held there by the Coanda effect. Henri took out patents on his discovery in 1936, and no other than Theodore von Kármán, the Hungarian-American mathematician, aerospace engineer and physicist, famed for his work in aero and astronautics, accepted Henri as being the discoverer of the effect. Von Kármán's work on the Coanda effect would inspire Jack Frost, a British aircraft designer who worked for Avro Canada, to develop the idea of a disc-shaped aircraft that would have remarkable performance, with speeds reaching Mach 3 or 4. In 1953, the Avro car was displayed to the public. It was a disc-shaped vertical landing and takeoff aircraft with a central power plant that, if developed, could have been a fighter of the future. The Canadian Minister for Defence Production informed the House of Commons that Avro was indeed working on a flying saucer capable of reaching 1,500 miles per hour, 2,400 kilometres per hour, and capable of climbing vertically. Nevertheless, for reasons never fully explained, further funding was never made available. However, back in the Nevada test ranges, a black United States version of the Avrocar Project Silver Bug was making headway. After overcoming a number of stability issues, the silver bug was progressing well, and the groomers were getting to grips with their project. Simply known as Y2, the silver bug went through various iterations, changes of power plants and improvements, but the writing was on the wall. It was never going to live up to its potential. Until... Late September 1956, a chance discovery was made. The weather over Nevada was being affected by the jet stream La Nina, and that had moved to the north and was sweeping down over Area 51. One of the groomers was flying the Y-2B at over 33,000 feet and close to Mach 1, 
when he encountered turbulence from the jet stream. He had been in the layer of fast-moving air when his aircraft pitched hard up, flying out of the jet, but now in slower air, his momentum gave him a boost of speed. As his control problems continued, he pitched down and back into the fast-flowing jet, whereupon he gained another 150 knots of speed. He eventually got the cycle of pitching up and down under control, but on the last exit of the jet stream, he had gained so much energy that the silver bug had exceeded Mach 1. Back on the ground, the data from this remarkable flight was examined, and it revealed a stunning fact. The groomers had discovered a way to surf the jet stream, utilising the power of the atmosphere to accelerate the aircraft by over a 100 knots with each cycle in and out of the energetic flow. More flights were undertaken and the technique refined so that with repeated loops in and out of the jet stream, a boost of speed could be achieved that accelerated the aircraft beyond Mach 1, then Mach 2 and even up to Mach 3. What's more, the usual heating problems associated with very high Mach number was greatly reduced since when re-entering the jet, the relative airflow was lower as was the heat generated, giving the skin a chance to rapidly cool. The most remarkable discovery was, however, the reduction in fuel requirements. Once the cycle in and out of the jet, coined dipping, was established, the only engine power needed was that required for attitude control and to maintain the coander effect the vital aerodynamic force that made this energy exchange so efficient. The potential for long-range, high supersonic flight was incredible, and by the time the Y2F00 Lima came along, that potential was realised. In early April 1961, the saucer, now named the Silver Surfer, took off from Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico in an attempt to circumnavigate the globe. Overhead lay the subtropical jet stream, one of four semi-permanent jets that circle the Earth. Ahead was a fleet of C-130 weather ships to aid in plotting the jet stream's height and its meandering path and pass that information to the Silver Surfer, as well as KC-135 tankers to aid recovery should the attempt falter. The unnamed groomer pilots clambered into their independent cockpits and took off, climbing up into a strong jet of 170 knots. Within a 100 miles or so, they had their dipping routine established and had already cruised up to Mach 2.8. It was a punishing routine of climbs and dives that subjected both pilots and the airframe to a continuous cycle of around 4G with little respite. However, averaging 1,800 knots, they were covering the ground at 34 miles every minute. They coasted out over Florida and began their crossing of the Atlantic, the fastest achieved to date by a huge margin. They progressed over North Africa, the Mediterranean, and then over the Black Sea. 
When the jet curved north into Soviet airspace, their chain of support aircraft were unable to come with them, so the Silver Surfer followed the forecast route of the stream. There were apparently a few moments of tension when they lost their river of air for a few minutes, leaving them vulnerable to interception by Soviet fighters. The crew quartered the sky until, almost by luck, their ground speed rose as they hit the middle again. Restarting their hard climbs and dives, they regained their momentum as the jet stream curved down over China, past Japan and out across the Pacific. Despite being back into the coverage of their med aircraft, the Silver Surfer again lost the core of the jet, but only for a little under a hundred miles before they re-established their cruel routine of dipping in and out again and again. Coasting in over the west coast of the United States, they passed overhead Holloman two hours, 47 minutes and 27 seconds after takeoff, completing an incredible flight of around 4,229 miles at an average speed of 1,787.53 miles per hour. Their fuel reserves were so high that they were able to return directly to Homey Airport in Area 51, and it was estimated that, had the groomer pilots been able to withstand over two more hours of punishment, they could have completed at least one more circumnavigation of the 30th parallel. There is still a great deal to be discovered about the Silverbug project, its achievements, and why it was wound down in the late 60s. Certainly, an aircraft that had to remain within the vicinity of jet streams would have been at a severe tactical disadvantage. More so, however, for the US than the USSR, since the subtropical jet stream wouldn't necessarily take bombers over the Soviet Union, and the polar jet that could is lower and slower and less reliable, the USSR had the advantage since the opposite was true. Regardless, once ICBMs were part of the military's inventory, the development of more such craft became unnecessary. It also remains the question of how the Canadians were persuaded to abandon the Avro car, and more worryingly, how the Soviet Air Force was able to build a strikingly similar aircraft within a few years of the Silver Bug. The Soviet flying saucer, Aprilia Adin, named for the birth date of Sergei Rachmaninoff, the famed Russian pianist, is known to have flown from their secret base at Igotcha, but whether they discovered its amazing ability to harness the power of the atmosphere in the same way as the Silver Bug project is unknown. However, one thing is for sure. Once these aircraft ceased their secret test flights, the number of reports describing alien spacecraft capable of unimaginable performance fell to just those that came from the misguided or those with an overexcited imagination. For a while, though, the Silver Surfer kept the Air Technical Intelligence Center very busy.
If you enjoyed this tale, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. And in case you're interested, the birth date of Sergei Rachmaninoff was April the 1st.